The following sermon is by Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Steve. Amen. Let's take our Bible, church, and turn to the New Testament book of James. James chapter number 2. How to kind of catch my composure just a little bit. I always enjoy it when we sing that last song. I love to tell the story. I, uh, first sermon I ever preached uh, some 21 years ago, I uh, used uh, the last line of that song as the introduction uh, to one of the worst sermons ever preached. Some of you might be thinking, Pastor, they've not gotten much better since then. All right. James chapter number two. Let me just kind of tell us where we are. We're kind of uh, drawing this second section to a close on the catechism. And, and so today we're going to look a, a little bit at the relationship between uh, faith and works and what all that entails. And so uh, on Wednesday nights and Wednesday night Bible study, I've been just kind of uh, creeping our way along through uh, the book of James. And um, lo and behold, this week I was supposed to have covered Wednesday night, James 2, 14 to 26. And um, I noticed that uh, for this Sunday, it seemed like this, this section of scripture fit perfectly here. And so I decided to do something different this last Wednesday night and bring this, uh, this lesson for us here today. We'll pick up this coming Wednesday night again with um, uh, James chapter number three. Follow along with me, if you would, uh, as the Bible reads this way. Verse number 14, James chapter two, verse number 14 says, uh, what use is it? My brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith or that kind of faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what, what use is that? Even so, faith... If it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you're doing well. The demons also believe and shake or shudder or tremble. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead so also faith without works is dead. Would you join me for a word of prayer together? 
Now, Father, we need you very much so in this hour. We thank you for the beautiful singing. There's such great music. And to be able to sing with God's people together, just corporately. I uh, know nobody in here, the greatest singer in the world, but... We certainly have our share of good ones, and we're thankful for that. But, Lord, every voice just singing about your Son and how marvelous he is and glorious he is. Now, Father, we thank you for the time of prayer, the time of giving. We thank you for our Bible study hour before. Now we've brought ourselves to this text in your word that is infallible. It is inerrant. It is inspired. All of that simply to say we believe that this is the authoritative word that you have spoken to us today. And so we pray that you would open up all of our minds, shake off the dust, and help us to think carefully. And Lord, that I, you would change us by your spirit so that we would have the kind of faith in our life that produces a life of living for Jesus. And I pray that you would transform us from the inside out, individually and corporately, Lord, for every person here today, for our children that are in children's church, Lord, for all of our souls, would you change us by the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, that we might be conformed to the Son of God. And we shall love you and thank you and bless you for all of your goodness and kindness toward us. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. What an interesting passage of scripture. I was reading this past week and kind of thinking about how do we, how do we jump into this. And I came across an old Irish parable. I, I, I doubt seriously whether it's true or not, but kind of, uh, kind of tells the story of this Irishman who is in a rowboat. And a fella comes over and, and, and he sees the Irishman in his rowboat. And he notices that on one oar has uh, engra engraved on the oar faith. And on the other oar, on the other side of the boat, is engraved works. And the guy standing there on the shore, he says to the Irishman, he says, hey, why do you have faith on one oar and works on the other oar? And he says, let me show you. He said, you see, if I just row with the oar of works, I just go in circles and I'm useless. It's nothing really happened. And, and likewise, if I put down the oar of works and I pick up the oar of faith and I row with just faith but no works, then I do the same thing. I, I go in circles. I just go the other way. But when I row with both of them, both faith and works, then I can get to the right destination. Isn't that a marvelous parable? Don't you like that? The problem with that is it's terrible. That is not the way you should understand this passage. See, brothers and sisters, I think we need to think clearly today about what James is saying here when we talk about faith and works. What you don't want to do is have in your mind somehow that faith is over here and works is completely separate from that and it's over here and that you can have faith and not have works or somehow you can have the works and not have faith. No, I think what we wanted to say today and the, the title is we put on here is John Wesley probably summed it up very well as he said, faith works. You see, faith being what biblical faith is always produces work. It always produces action. And the main idea of this text today is that faith without works is dead. I was sitting in my office earlier this week and, and studying and I had all my books open and working through it. And I, I texted a pastor, a friend of mine down in Apex, and I said, and we kind of had one of those hello McFly moments, you know, just like, duh. I said to him, I said, I just spent the last 15 minutes trying to think of the main idea of this passage 
and how I could word it and package it in such a way that the people would get it. And then I just look back down at the text and realize that it says it to you three times and there's no reason for me to change it. So here's the main idea of the text. Faith without works is dead. Look at verse number 17 for a moment. Three times he says this. Look at verse number 17. Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Then look again in verse number 20. He says it again. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. And then again in verse number 26, look at what he says. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And brothers and sisters, what we need to understand from the Bible today is that belief or faith is the readiness to act as if what you believe is true. That is the most simple definition of faith that I can give you. It is belief or faith is the readiness to act as if what you believe is really true. And so everybody in the world has some degree of faith or another. Like when you walked in here today, right, you sat down on a pew. That was an act of faith. Right? You believe that the pew would hold you up, that it was built well, that uh, nobody has worn your spot out and it's ready to cave in. And so when you, when you uh, came in here, nobody, I saw nobody come in here today and do this number right here. Yeah. Now, if you sat, if you were going to sit where I was sitting, maybe you might have done that thinking, hey, if the big boy sat there, maybe it's not strong anymore. No, no, nobody does that. Faith, being what faith is, results in action. And so it's not this concept of that you have faith over here and you row with that and you have works over here and you row with that. The actuality is this, both oars say faith works. And if you're in the boat and you believe that that is the way to get to the other side, then you pull with both oars and it works. You see, belief is the readiness to act as if something were the way that it is. Now, in the context of this passage, 14 to 26, the, it's the same discussion that has gone on at the end of chapter number one. Do you remember when uh, James says at the end of chapter one, be doers of the word and not hearers merely or only, right? The whole concept here is that you cannot receive, and that's what James is saying at the end of chapter number one. It's not just a hearing, it's a listening, it's an absorbing. You cannot rightly receive and hear the word of the living God, the engrafted word of God, without it producing a doing, a being, a living the Christian life. And he comes right back to that. Don't be hearers only, but be doers of the word of God, right? And in this passage, he's saying, listen, it's not just having something that resembles faith, but true faith always results in a life that lives for Jesus. So James gives us two illustrations in this passage from the negative standpoint, and he gives us two illustrations from the positive standpoint. So let's briefly look at them today before we close. Look with me, if you will, back at the text. Look at verse 14. He says, what use, use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? And then your translation should read this way. Can that, 
faith or can that kind of faith. If you have something that says can faith, there's a definite article that's in front of that. And so it should say can that kind of faith or can that faith save him? And that has been the source of many problems in this passage. James is not saying that faith can't save you. James is saying the kind of faith that doesn't have works attached to it, the kind of faith that doesn't produce a life that loves Jesus, that's not faith at all. And that kind of faith cannot save you. Furthermore, and I think you'll find it interesting, you can study on your own time, but at the end of verse number 14 when he says, can that faith save him? Or save you? Uh, we have a tendency when we see the word salvation in Scripture to think about our salvation at the cross. And most certainly that is in perspective and view here. But uh, James is also using this at a latter day kind of way in the future. He is saying, listen, there's going to come a day in the end of time when Jesus comes down to the world. And he takes all that is wicked in the world and destroys it. And he establishes all of his righteousness in his kingdom rule. And he's saying, listen, do you have the kind of faith that will serve Survive and save you from the wrath to come upon unbelieving and sinful people. If you have the kind of faith that does not produce a life of love and righteousness and holiness, if you just have some sort of pseudo-faith, you've made a decision, signed a card, been baptized in a water, you got real sentimental one time at a meeting, and yet what you have said and what you say you believe does not produce a life that loves Jesus James is saying, you ought to be real careful. Do you have the kind of faith that will stand the holy fires of God when he comes back? I'm reminded of when Jesus said, many shall say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not do many wonderful works? And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. So if you're in the room today, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a faith in name only? Do you have some sort of pseudo-faith that doesn't really live for Jesus? Or do you have a true kind of faith that produces action in your life to look and live for Jesus Christ. Look at verse number 15. Now here's the first example. Here's the first illustration that James gives. He says, if a brother or sister, so notice first of all, this is not necessarily speaking about outsiders or unbelievers or visitors to our church, although we want to do this for everybody. But James gets real detailed here and he gets right into the minutia and he says, hey, listen, before we, you know, the Bible says judgment begins at the house of God. So before we go criticizing all of our neighbors and all of the unbelievers in the world, why don't all of us as an Emmanuel Baptist Church today, why don't we all get right with Jesus, say, woe is me, confess our sin, and do what Jesus wants us to do. Judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Look what he says here. And one of you says to them, or verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing, the word there is naked. Without clothing is just a gracious way of saying they're naked. Now, if one of our brothers and sisters comes in here on a Sunday morning naked, we got problems. You know what I'm saying? We got a security team for that. Right. Look what he says here. If a brother or sister is without clothing, naked, has nothing, 
and is in need of daily food. So here, here James is taking an illustration. He's driving it to the extreme because he's wanting to make a point. He's saying, listen, if one of the brothers or sisters in our congregation comes in here and they don't have any clothes to put on their body at all, they are so destitute, they are so marginalized, they are so out there, they have no clothes. And where it says daily food, it's not just talking about not having enough money in the bank or not having had hardies in the morning or not having Biscuitville on the way in, saying, listen, you don't have enough for your daily food. You don't know where your next meal is coming in. That's the illustration. Look what he says. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Do you catch the, do you catch the similarity there between the last verse? One, the person comes into our midst, they have no clothing, and they have no food. And what do we say to them? Go in peace. Some sort of gracious, uh, uh, baptistic kind of uh, uh, articulation. That's a first century baptistic way of saying, uh, God bless y'all. Be warmed and filled. You're naked. Stay warm. You don't have anything to eat. We hope your belly's full. Where it says be warmed and filled, that can be translated in a couple of different ways. It could be using a reflexive here to simply say something like, uh, something like, uh, I hope that works out for you. Right? I don't want to be bothered with your nakedness. I don't want to be bothered with the fact that you don't have any food. I don't really want to be bothered with your life at all because I got enough of my own problems going on. Right? Amen? Listen, you know you see some people coming down the hall and you know not to ask them how things are going because they're going to tell you. Right? So what do you say? God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. Hope things work out for you. Could be taken that way. Better yet, it might be taken in a passive sense where it says be warmed and filled, where there's a slight edge to it of condemnation and condescending. You're not warmed and you're not filled because something's wrong with you. You're lazy. You don't work. I know I don't know anything about your life. I know I've never taken time to sit down with you over a cup of coffee and find out who you are as a true soul, but I've already made my judgments of you. And the reason why you're naked and the reason why you're hungry and the reason why you're marginalized, I've made up all of that in my own mind and I've already standing in judgment of you. And the reason why you're not warmed and the reason why you're not filled and the reason why you don't have work and the reason why you don't have money in the bank and the reason why you're not like me and my band of people and the reason why you can't sit at the table with me with my little clique of people is because you probably deserve where you are. Look back at the text. One of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And yet you do not give them what is the basic necessities for their body. What use is that? Do you see at the end of verse number 16 where your translation may say something like, what use is that or what profit is that? And verse number 14 began with the same statement, right? What profit is that or what use is that? It's bracketed that way to tell you, hey, listen, this is for us to stop and analyze this illustration for just a second. Brothers and sisters, let me drive this home in all of our lives. You see, if we come in here today and we say we believe Jesus and we sing that he's cornerstone and we sing that he rose from the dead and we sing let others 
see Jesus in us and we say that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we don't even serve in the mundane issues of life, not ruling the world, not being the greatest missionary, but simply giving somebody clothing and food. We don't take care of the basic needs of each other. Then do you really have faith in Christ? That's the question. Because true faith produces the kind of life that serves and loves other people. Now, let me pause for a moment. I kind of help you just work that into your life for a second. You say, Steve, how, how, is it, how does it demonstrate that I have faith if I get a hold of Kathy Moore and Martine Strickland and the next time they have a get-together where they're going to go visit some of our homebound shut-in? How, how, how does that, if I go do that, how does that demonstrate that I have faith? Well, let me see if I can work that into your life just a little bit. You say, if you'll take just a, a little bit of time to do something like that, the problem, the reason why most of us don't do those kinds of, and you listen, that's not the only place to serve. I'm not condemning anybody that doesn't do that. There's a thousand and one places to serve. But part of the reason why we don't take time to serve is because we believe that our time and the things of our life and the things that we want to do is so critically valuable that it can't be replaced. But when we take time to serve and meet the needs of other people, what you're generally saying in your heart is, you know what? I can take a little bit of a Saturday. I can take a little bit of my money. I can take a little bit of my effort, my time. I could take a Wednesday night and come over here. And you know what? I'm trusting that if I serve in the life of my community and in the life of my church, that Jesus Christ is well able to meet all the needs that I have. He's able to give me enough rest. He's able to put back in my bank account what I give to somebody else. How could I ever give to the church? How could I ever? Are you saying, I, and I know all of the arguments. You don't know what I'm all I'm not, I'm not arguing. I'm not getting into your budget. I'm not none of that. I'm just saying to you, when we give, when we serve, when we take care of the mundane, normal things of the Christian life, and we begin to love other people as Christ would love them, what we are saying is that we trust Christ to make all the difference. And if I give to the work of God, God will take care of everything I need. That if I take somebody to lunch, if I sit down with somebody and invest in their life and pour myself into them, let me, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. You see, the more that you pour your life out into other people, the more Christ will pour his life into you. And the reason why you don't experience the joy and the wonder and the glory of being filled with the Spirit of God, filled with God's goodness and see Him meeting and doing all of the wonderful things that you read about in Scripture is because you're like a sponge that has never been wrung out. And so the water of God's glory simply rolls over top of you and you yawn. And the reason why you read about the lives of the people in Scripture and you feel as if, and we feel as if our lives are somehow, somehow so much different than their life is because those people were living the kind of faith that was wrung out for Jesus. They were loving and going and giving. They were giving everything that they had. And the more they gave of themselves, the more Christ gave of himself. 
And if you find yourself at a place where Christianity is just kind of humdrum for you, most likely the reason is because you're not pouring out a life of work and service for Him. True faith produces a life of service, a life of love, and a life of grace. Look back down at the text. Let me just move through these rather quickly. So, in verse number 17, he kind of ends again by saying, even so faith doesn't have works, is dead, right? Because it's by itself. It's, it's not real faith. Real faith produces a life of love and service to Jesus. Now look at verse number 18. He gives you a second example from the negative standpoint. It says, but someone may say, you have faith and I have works, so show me your faith without works. Now just pause for a moment. And now James, is, I think James might be a little snarky, Right? You get what he's saying here? Some, it's, a, it's, kind of like a, it's kind of like a parabolic conversation that two people are having. And you're peering in on that. And some guy says, you know, I, I have faith and I do not even need to work it out. And, and James says, oh, that's great. Well, why don't you show me how much faith you have by your works? See, brothers and sisters, one of the ways and one of the demonstrations that we genuinely believe and trust in Jesus Christ and that he is the Lord and master of our life is that we actually live Christ-like lives. And if you find yourself not living a Christ-like life, then I think it's fair for you to ask yourself, do you really believe and trust in Jesus if you don't live a life that follows Him? Let me, let me hit that from a different way, just make you think today. If I'm not talking about having bad days and bad weeks and stuff like that. I'm saying, as you look over your life right now, If you don't have a desire, more times than not, to serve Jesus in your work, with your family, in your life, in your travels, in the things that you do, in your schooling, if you don't wake up a lot with the idea of, I love Jesus and I want to go live for Him today, I got to take an exam. Well, I'm going to take it to the glory of Jesus. Right? I got to go to a job that is not my favorite, but I'm going to do it to the glory of Jesus. I'm going to figure out a way to serve Christ at my work. Holidays are coming. Sometimes they say around Christmas time that the best lights at Christmas time is tail lights watching your family leave. You might be thinking, I got to be around family. I got to do this. Listen, do you wake up with a desire to go serve and live for Jesus in your life? Is church, a, is church in your mind something that you do and you're part of if there's nothing else on the calendar and you happen to be in town that week? Or do you wake up most days thinking, how can I serve and live and tell people about Jesus and invite folks to come to church? How can I be a part of what God is doing? If you don't have something inside that is really pushing you and, and causing you to say, I want to live out the Christ-like life. I, I have these old habits and these old desires and this old sinful self in it breaks my heart and I want to lay that down and I want to follow like Jesus. I want to walk in his way. I want to walk with Jesus. If you don't have that going on, then I'm just simply asking you to question your own salvation. Because James would say, genuine biblical faith always produces action. 
Now, you don't have time now, but maybe, maybe you might want to read the beginning chapter of the book of Colossians when you get home. You know what Paul says? He says, we've heard of your faith. Now, how, how do you hear of somebody's faith if they never do anything? How do you hear of somebody's faith if they never say anything? No. The people at Colossae trusted Jesus. And because they trusted Him with all of their heart, they began to live lives for Christ. Serving, loving, giving, going, doing, building the work of Jesus. And that band of people, their faith was heard throughout the community and throughout that whole region. So much so that the Apostle Paul says, I hear what's going on over there. You all believe and you're walking with Jesus. Look back down at the verse here. and He says here, um, and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, look here. He says, you believe that God is one. You, you do well. <laughs> the demons also believe and shudder. When it says you, uh, you believe that God is one, that's, uh, that's James harking back all the way to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, a phrase called the Shema in, uh, in Jewish uh, culture. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It's kind of like a, a doxological statement, and the Jews said it all the time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's what God wanted His people to believe. And so he says here, you believe the Lord, you believe God is one. That is, you affirm this uh, doctrinal truth. You affirm right theology. You affirm what your church believes. You affirm what the Bible says. That's great. So does the devil. And furthermore, it scares them. Do you see what he's using here in the second illustration? He's saying, look, you know, maybe, maybe if James was speaking to Emmanuel, he would say something to us like this. You all affirm the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Some of our folks that have joined us in the past few years are like, the Baptist, what? <laughs> we hold to a, a statement of faith. We believe in this church. You hear me, even my prayer a few minutes ago. We believe that the Word of God is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is inspired. We simply believe that every word written in this Bible comes directly from the mouth of God Himself. We hold to that. James is saying, listen, you believe that God is one? Wonderful. You believe the Bible is inspired? Beautiful. You believe in the doctrines and the theology of the Bible? That is fantastic. What is it doing in your life? Where does what you affirm and believe theologically translate into the way that you live practically? The old timers would have said something like this, our orthodoxy must transform our orthopraxy. That is what we believe must translate into the way that we live. I can't tell you how many believers and Baptists I will meet and they stick their thumbs in their spiritual suspenders and they affirm all the right truths. They know what to say. They carry the right Bibles. They know everything how to be religious, but it does not translate into the way that they live for Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What does he say? The, the, the demons, they believe that or they hold to that and they shudder. You know the word there, shudder, it's the word for fear, but it's, it's not the healthy kind of fear. 
It's not the fear that turns one into the love of God and receives Him as Lord and Savior and lives. It's the fear that stands at a distance and says, I know that to be the case, but I will not let it change the way that I live. Hey, folks, please hear me just for a couple minutes. You see what he's saying? Demons believe there's one God. But do you see any demons or read about any demons in the Scripture who change their mind and say, I know there's one God, therefore I'll stop serving Satan, I'll stop serving myself, and I'll serve Jesus Christ the rest of my days. You don't find any devil doing that in the Bible. Why? Because they don't have genuine saving faith that produces a life changed into the image of Christ. Now, before you get out of here, I'm not calling us all devils, but I am saying, I've met a few Baptists who were devils. All right, I go off track, but <laughs> how many of us say we believe there's one God and one Christ? We say we believe that Jesus died and rose again for us and that He's the Lord of life, but I want to do my own thing. I want to be the master of my own life. No, God, I'm not about to give that up. I'm not about to do that. I'm not going to do anything that's outside of the comfort zone of me doing what I want to do. James is just merely saying to us, check your mind, check your heart, and see, just because you affirm a doctrinal truth doesn't mean that you're a genuine believer. Unless what you believe, there is one God translates into you living for Him. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, let me give you the last two. We'll move quickly, just a few minutes. Look here. Look at the text. James just breaks these last two illustrations down into two Old Testament characters, Abraham and Rahab. And could you find two polar opposites, right? You have a man and a woman. You have the guy who is the, the beginner of the children of Israel. You know, all, I mean, God's chosen people. And you find this lady who we would never say this today, Rahab the harlot. They characterize her by her own problems. We would never want to say that. But yet we find ourselves looking at these two people and they both have genuine faith that transforms their lives. Look back down there if you would. Verse number 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Hey, wait a minute. I thought he was justified by faith. Yeah, watch. Look. Justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Interesting little note here. You see how the last illustration was about the demons who shudder or have fear? You know what the Bible says in Genesis 22 about Abraham? God says to him, and now I know you fear me. Why? You fear me and you trust me because you obey me. You see, the demons are in fear, but it produces no obedience in their life. Therefore, they have not genuine faith. Abraham feared God appropriately and put his faith and confidence in Him and it produced a life of obedience so that he was prepared to take his son to the, up to the hill and to die. Let me pause for a moment and just remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ also 
the Son of God, just as Abraham had taken his son Isaac up on the mountain to die. You know what happens in Genesis 22? I know many of you do, but for those of you who don't, Abraham is supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac up on the mountain, and right before he gets ready to do it, God says, I've provided for you a sacrifice. Look, there's a ram caught in the thicket, and he sacrifices the ram instead of his son. But several thousand years later, God the Father takes his son, right, Christ Jesus up upon the mountain and there instead of providing another sacrifice for his son he allows his son to be the sacrifice for all the people in the world who would believe in him and instead of being excused from the penalty Christ bears our penalty Christ bears our shame Christ bears the sacrifice and dies on the cross so that every man woman and boy and girl who would put their faith and confidence in Jesus could have everlasting life he did that for you he did that for me, for all who would believe in Him. Maybe it would surprise you to know that the person who has had the most faith in all the world was Jesus Christ. Do you think about Jesus being a man of faith? You should. Jesus had confidence that God was in absolute control, His Father, and that He had called Him to die for the sins of the world. He had so much confidence that he went up to the cross, died for our sins, and knew that his father would raise him again. If you're looking for how that connects with Abraham, now I'm doing more teaching than preaching. Abraham says to Isaac in Genesis, he tells the two guys, he says, hey, y'all stay here. Me and my boy, we're going to go yonder and worship, right? And we, plural, we will come again. And the book of Hebrews says the reason why Abraham said we will come again is because he knew that God, if necessary, would raise his promised son from the ground. And Jesus, the greater and fuller Isaac, dies on the cross in absolute faith knowing that he was the promised Messiah and that God the Father would raise him again because he had died and paid the penalty for our sins. Here's the last illustration. We'll call it quits today. Look at it, verse number 25. In the same way, right, with the same kind of faith, nothing better about Abraham. In the same way, uh, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? I said earlier about seminary, uh, people go to seminary and we, I, I've been there and there, you know, listen, I know we argue, fussified about everything under the sun uh, and not only tithing, but I can't tell you how many conversations I've been in. Well, did Rahab sin when she hid the spies and was it better for her to lie or better for her to hide the spy? Can I just want to tell you something. The, the Bible's not interested in answering that question for you. That's not what's going on in this text. So don't waste your time arguing about it. What this text is drawing attention to is Rahab believed in the God of Israel. And it produced in her the desire to hide the spies. She was fallen, she was sinful, and so are you, and so am I. And in the best of her own heart, she believed so much in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that it produced a desire in her to work, to act, 
I just want to ask you, which side of those illustrations do you fall on? Do you have the kind of faith that doesn't help anybody out? Do you have the kind of faith that believes in some set of theological standards, but you still rule and reign in your own life? Or do you have the kind of faith that is believed on the Son of God and is following Him in fear and obedience like the latter two? I have a sneaking suspicion that the majority of my friends in here today, you are believers. But I don't want to let you off the hook that easy because some of you are thinking, oh, of course I work, of course I do, of course I do this, I do that. And that justifies my belief in Him. You'll know what's truly going on in your soul when it's something you don't want to do. Or when you're corrected about some sin in your life. Or when some leadership in your life comes along and says, this is the right thing to do and you're not doing it. How much of a fuss and a fight do you put up then? The evidence of this believing and obeying is a humble heart. It says, Lord, I'll surrender myself to you and I'll follow you. Would you um, bow your heads with me and close your eyes for a minute? I'll just give you a minute. I'm not sure what your weeks look like. I hope you've had a chance to pray, but if you've not had a lot of opportunity to pray, maybe right now would be a good time. If you're here today and you say, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I want to have the real kind of faith. Listen, He wants to save you. Trust Him. Trust Him. Put your faith and confidence in Him. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer. And you know you're a believer. You know you've trusted Jesus. But as you look over your life, there's some sort of disconnect from the way you live and the way you think from what you say you believe. Why don't you talk to Jesus about that right now? He stands ready to forgive and love you. He'll walk beside you. Just give that over to Him right now. You've been listening to Stephen Tillis, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh. For more information and free access to other messages, please visit us at ebcraleigh.com.